Welcome to the Well Community Jokes. Wherever you are, um, I'm so glad that you're part of this. I hope you understand my accent. And um, I'm from a little bit further south than here, if you kind of just fly really south for a long time. Um, I'm from Sydney, Australia, the great land down under, but I'm not the crocodile hunter. I don't like animals, I'm sorry. But um, anyway, Nick and I couldn't wait to get here, and I am married to the single most ravishing piece of masculine flesh on planet Earth. And um, my husband is the 12th of 13 living children, and so there's parts of Australia that have no television, and that's where he was from. But uh, he's actually, I'm thinking Pastor Craig and Amy need to catch up because there's still like only six, so they need to have at least another seven more. And um, we have two little girls, my little Catherine Bobby and my little Sophia Joyce. I have a seven-year-old and a three-year-old, and we have the awesome privilege of traveling and helping to build the body of Christ worldwide and reach the last. I couldn't think of anything better to do with our lives. And so I, when I was invited to come here, I, I can't even explain to you the excitement. I'm like a, a little kid in a candy shop. I'm so pumped to be here. And you guys are truly touching the earth. And I, I'm not just saying that. Pastor Craig came to our Hillsong conference and was unbelievable. I mean, he's very, very well loved in Australia. I've got to tell you, his teaching was so radical. And sometimes, you know, I was in a car in, in, Cape, in Copenhagen and I was raving about how great it was. And the cab driver said to me, he was very emotional, he said to me, do you really think my city is so awesome? And I said, it's unbelievable. And he said these words that I'll never forget. He said, sometimes you can be right in the midst of it and not even see it. And sometimes you can be part of an awesome church and planted in an awesome church in different locations all around the world under such great apostolic leadership and not quite even realize what you've got. But let me just say you ought to thank God that you're under such great leadership. You ought to thank God daily for Pastor Craig and Amy and all they've done and their commitment to building a great Bible-based church that's touching the earth, reaching the lost, and going to make a difference for Jesus on the earth. So you ought to thank God. I've got to tell you that much. You know, we need a lot more of such churches because we have a desperate world that desperately needs Jesus Christ. Nick and I were suffering for Jesus in Florence a while ago, and um, someone had to do it. We said, here we are, Lord, send us. But anyway... <laughs> We were there, and we went up to a cathedral that in its heyday probably housed about 7,000 people, this humongous sanctuary. Amazing artwork all around the walls. I mean, the architecture in and of itself was phenomenal. And we had to pay five euros to go in, climb to the top of the steeple, and look out across the city. And I remember when I was on top of that steeple looking out, I just started to cry. And I thought, Lord, whoever built this church, however many well, that was, was built over many, many years. All the years of building, all the people that were involved in building, all the giving that was required to build such a church, they didn't do that with the intention that maybe 100 or 200 years' time that this church would be just a tourist attraction, just a monument, somewhere where you pay five euros to go in and look at a city. This thing that had once been a life-giving, thriving church now was just a dead, empty monument, a testimony to what God once did in a city. I was thinking about all the people that might have been found relationship with Christ there, maybe found healing, marriages restored, people finding life and hope, and yet now it was this dead, empty tourist attraction. And the reason I started crying was I said, Lord, how do I know this isn't going to happen to our church? You know, nowadays, uh, everyone knows Hillsong Church for all its great songs, and I know many of you were excited 
thinking that um, here's a woman from Hillsong with blonde hair, even though it's dyed to cover the gray. But anyway, here's a woman from Hillsong here, and she's going to break forth into shout to the Lord. But honestly, if I was to sing shout to the Lord today, you would all cry to the Lord. So it's not going to happen. But, you know, here's a church known for all its music. It's a greatly built church in Sydney, Australia, and around the world. And how do I know that this isn't going to happen in 100 or 200 years' time? How do we know that this isn't going to happen to lifechurch.tv? How do we know? There are no guarantees. Whoever built that church didn't think that was going to happen. And a little phrase dropped in my heart that really helped me to understand a lot of things. This was the the phrase that dropped in, and I, I felt the Lord just say, Chris, this is what happens when the church stops being the church and the church just starts doing church on a Sunday. When we just start going through the motions of some boring religious ritual or obligation, even if we've got great music and great screens and great technology, when we stop being the church of Jesus Christ and then being engaged in what Jesus is passionate about, then you know what? We just become a dead, empty monument, nothing more than just a ritualistic kind of building that someone goes to and just goes through the motions. You see, we need to ensure that our heart beats for the same thing that God's heart beats for, and that's for a lost and a broken world. The Bible says in the book of Matthew that Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. God is consumed with the lost, and we ought to be passionate for what he is passionate about. You see, passion is really the seedbed of reaching a lost and a dying world. We ought to be passionate. You know if you're still passionate about your relationship with God and about your Christian life, When you're not just going through the motions because you do what you want out of passion, but you just do what you have to when it's an obligation. Like Nick and I, when we met, I went in to do a relief lecture in Bible school uh, to do an evangelism lecture. He was a student. I was a teacher. We're the same age, but he went to college later than me. And I went in and he tells his story. He kind of fell in love with the teacher. Now, we had a rule at the time in our college that students couldn't date but we had no rules about students and teachers. So we kind of, um, Nick thought, I'm going to go on a, a little kind of adventure to try to date the teacher. So he suddenly became very interested in community-based evangelism and kept making appointments to see me um, over that. But you know, he found out from my best friend that I swam at six o'clock every morning at our local pool. Now, I had never seen him down at our local swimming pool. I'd been doing this for a year. Then all of a sudden, I'd go down the pool and every morning at six o'clock, there was a guy doing laps up and down the pool. Well, after about a week, we bumped into each other. And I said, Nick, what are you doing down here? He goes, you know, that kind of male defensive. What do you mean, what am I doing here? I'm always here at 6 o'clock in the morning. I love swimming at 6 o'clock in the morning. (laughs) Now, church, I've been married to the guy for 14 years. Never once, not even once in 14 years has my husband ever got up at 6 o'clock in the morning and gone down to our pool to swim. Because, you see, you do what you want out of passion. No one has to make you read the Bible. No one has to make you go to church. No one has to make you tithe. No one has to make you passionately be involved with a lost and a broken world. It comes out of your love relationship with God. It's just what you do. No one has to make you. It's not a boring religious obligation. I mean, when Mel Gibson made that movie, The Passion of the Christ, did anyone see that? What a, what a wonderful film. Well, did you notice it wasn't called The Boring Religious Obligation of the Christ? It was called The Passion. In fact, when The Passion was released, Two weeks later, I was in Baton Rouge, and Jim Caviezel was in this restaurant that we were in. Now, I am not normally starstruck, okay, but I have to admit, 
he was sitting across there and because the movie so moved me, I was starting to freak out. So very inappropriately loudly, inappropriately loudly, I yelled out across the restaurant and Nick was sitting right there, but I'm going to Nick, oh my gosh, there's Jesus. Okay, Nick's like, Chris, you should know the difference. But anyway, so, I mean, I was like freaking. So he said, okay, the guy that we were with knew um, the man that was with Jim Caviezel. So he said, I'll take you to introduce you. And I'm like, oh no, I was like, oh, anyway. So I went over and Jim was there and the man said to him, hi, this is Christine Kane, my friend from Australia. Didn't say what I did, didn't say anything other than that. And so he looked at me and just locked eyes. And if you saw those eyes on the cross, all I'm thinking about was they mustn't have used filters because they're, anyway, so I'm like those eyes. And so he stood up and he's really tall and I'm not. So he's looking down at me and he said, these are the first words he said to me. He goes, there are not many believers in Australia, are there? I didn't know what to say. I'm like, no, nobody believes in Australia. There are no believers in Australia. I was like freaking out. So then I'm not joking for the next 15 minutes. He full on started witnessing to me. I mean, everything, the cross, the blood, the resurrection. He was so passionate. I didn't have the heart to tell him I was a Christian. I mean, I was just like, and then I'm not joking about halfway through, I'd already made up my mind. If he was going to ask me to pray the sinner's prayer, I was down on a knee. I was just going to pray. Passion. There's a passion. And what we need in the church of Jesus Christ is a passion. I think what has hit us is a passion deficiency syndrome. You know, we're passionate when we're young in our teenage years and then we suddenly get to 25. We don't do passion anymore. We do coffee now. And so we get all kind of cool and too slick for God. But you see, you and I are who God is sending to a lost and a broken world and we ought to be passionate about the same thing that he is passionate about. God loves the lost. For God so loved the world, the Bible says, that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to earth to die on a cross, rise again from the dead. So that whosoever, whosoever, and what we need to do is love the whosoever's. In fact, he's so passionate about the lost. In one chapter of scripture, he talks about them in three different parables, in three different ways. You won't find that anywhere else in the Bible. In Luke chapter 15, he talks about a lost sheep. He talks about a lost coin. He talks about a lost son. Jesus is consumed with arresting our attention for the lost. And I love those parables in that chapter because we learn a lot about lost because for a long time the church has become great at pointing a finger, a critical judgmental finger at the lost, psychoanalyzing the lost, pontificating about the lost and doing everything but reaching a lost and a broken world. We've left that to the elite troops of the church, the Navy SEALs, the big guns, the big mega ministers. They're the ones that are going to do it. The rest of us, it's not my gift. It's not my calling. It's not where I fit on the disc profile. It's just not what I'm really led to do. It's not a gift or a calling. It's a mandate from heaven for every single Christian to go and change a lost and a broken world. It's not something that an elite few have. I love it. He talks about a lost sheep first. I'm from Australia. We have a lot of sheep. And you could be driving down the street and there's a paddock with, at the end of the night with a whole lot of sheep. And then there's this other paddock with this one little lost sheep all on its own. And that sheep didn't wake up in the morning thinking, gee, I want to get lost today. It just had its head down. It's eating grass. It was just preoccupied with eating. Stuck its head up at the end of the day, kind of went, bah, that being interpreted is I'm lost. And so it gets lost at the end of the day. It was just preoccupied. We have a generation on the earth that is just preoccupied. They're trying to pay the bills. They're trying to keep their kids off drugs. They're trying to keep their marriages together. They're not some big, bad, demonic, evil person. They're just preoccupied with this thing called life. 
And our job isn't to criticize or condemn or point a judgmental finger, but to go and seek and save that which is lost. You and I are God's spiritual GPS system. He goes on and talks about a lost coin. And let me just say, the coin didn't get lost on its own. The woman was careless with the coin, and the coin got lost. You know, we have a generation. We've had a generation that should have been stewards over their lives that were very careless with their lives. And that generation has ended up lost. Maybe you know what it feels like, like I do. People that should have been looking after me certainly did it. When I was born, I was left in a hospital, unnamed and unwanted. In fact, my birth certificate doesn't have a name on it. It says, child's name, unnamed. Number 2508 of 1966. I was left in a hospital, unnamed. And then pretty much every week of my life, from the time I was three years old until the time I was 15, I was abused at the hands of four men almost weekly for 12 years. Now that messes with you. It wasn't that I was a big, bad, evil person. I was lost because people that should have been looking after me weren't. And that word abuse in the Oxford Dictionary simply means to use an object for a purpose for which it was not designed. And for 12 years, I was used for a purpose for which God never designed me, and I ended up lost. There are lots of people on the earth that end up lost, and not necessarily of their own volition or desire, but because people were careless like the woman was with the coin. Our job, again, is not just to criticize and point a finger, but to go and bridge the gap and understand why and help reach a lost and a broken world. Or maybe, like the son, well, yes, he made his own decision. He went to the father, asked for his inheritance, went and squandered everything, ended up in a pig pen. He didn't think, Dad, give me the money so I can end up in a pig pen. He simply miscalculated. He thought a life without the father would be better than a life with the father. And you know what? Whether it's through being preoccupied or whether through someone else's carelessness or perhaps through even your own miscalculation. It really doesn't matter how or why people end up lost. People just end up lost. And our job is to go and seek and save that which was lost. Our job is to be a connector, to take the hands of a loving father and the hands of a lost and a broken world and reconcile them through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and help those that were lost be found back into authentic relationship with Jesus. That's our job. See, essentially, church, we're God's spiritual GPS system. You know, for the sake of our marriage a few years ago, my husband and I went and got a navigation system for the car. We have a great marriage, and apparently I can communicate to the whole world, but when it's just Nick and I in a car, he seems to think I don't have any ability to read a map book and give instructions. And my husband thinks that the 11th commandment is thou shalt never stop and ask for instructions from anyone. It's like it's a sin. And so, you know, we just thought it's probably going to be better for our life if we just get a little navigation system. So we got one, and it's called a Navman in Australia. So we put the Navman on in the car. But it's a lie. It's false marketing because it's not a man. When the Navman started talking, she was a woman. And, um, and not only was she a woman, this is what really ticked me off. My husband listens to that woman in the car. I'm like married 14 years, giving him two children, but no, he listens to her. So I called her Matilda because I'm Australian. And so I called her Matilda and every now and again, just to show Matilda who really is in charge in this relationship, who's the real wife, I, I get in the car and so we start driving down. And Matilda, you know, she says like, next exit on the right. And out loud, if you ever see me talking in a car on my own, it's me. I go out loud, I say, no, I love this. 
because I go straight past the exit and then Matilda goes into tilt. She starts to go snowy. You know, the screen goes all snowy. And so I drive past and then I'll take the next exit and it gets better because then she goes full on flatline. She goes into cardiac arrest, okay? So she has this heart attack and I think, fantastic. And then these words start coming out on the screen. It starts going, rerouting, rerouting. And every time I see that rerouting, I think that is the job of the church. We're there to be as close to the exit ramps of life as we can. And as people are about to take a wrong turn off, we're supposed to be there and say, no, let me help reroute you back into the relationship for which you were created. You were created for a relationship with Jesus Christ. We're here to reroute you. So church, how did we get so far away from the mandate that God has for us? How did we go so far into where we settled for bureaucratized, creedalized, institutionalized religion rather than embracing a lost and a broken world? How do we run from darkness when the mandate of the gospel is to take our light into a darkness so that our light would so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven? That's what the scripture says. I want you to turn with me, if you can, today to the book of John chapter 17. You can turn to your neighbor, actually, and say, I've heard a rumor she breathes, but, you know... I'm both Greek and a woman, so good luck. I only speak three ways, hard, fast, and continuously. You won't fall asleep. If this is your first time in church this weekend, you won't sleep. Okay, John chapter 17. I love this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. I'm in Luke. I thought, gee, that doesn't say anything <laughs> that I wanted to say. I mean, the whole Bible's good. You can go wherever you want, but I'm going to John 17. It's all good, I guarantee you. Wherever you are, just read it all. John 17. Verse 14, Jesus says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Now this next verse is what I, where I think many people have missed it and actually have people have erased this from their Bible because look what Jesus said. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. So Jesus is praying to the Father and actually telling us what he's not praying. He's saying, I do not pray that you take them out of the world. I do not pray that you create this artificial little subculture removed from the world. I do not pray that you remove them from a big, black, evil, dark world. But as you sent me, Father, I send them. They are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them by thy truth, for your word is truth. So essentially he's saying, I'm not asking that you take them out. But we all have to understand we're to be in this world, but not of it. Now, where we've reduced this in Christianity is we think, oh, Jesus said not to be of the world. That means no, well, it depends which tradition you're from. But it either can mean no tattoos or long hair or short hair or pants or skirts or, you know, smoking or drinking. or we, We've just defined it by external behavior modification. So we think I'm a Christian now, so we define our whole Christianity by what I no longer do. I don't drink anymore, I don't smoke anymore, I've got all my tattoos removed, I've cut my hair, and um, I'm really boring and a nerd. And you too can become a socially dysfunctional, boring person like me and be a Christian, amen. And so that's kind of what we've reduced it to. I'm not worldly. We call worldliness external things, as if somehow Christianity is an external behavior modification program. Last I checked, it was far more than that. It was an internal heart transformation program. God transforms the human heart, which then results in us probably stopping patterns of destructive behavior. But it's not about 
what you wear. It's about the condition of your heart. But we've removed ourselves and thought, oh no, what a big, bad, evil world. But if you read the Bible, which is a real novelty for Christians, if you do that, you will discover that what Jesus calls worldly, let me just read you a list here. The Bible says things that are worldly are things like gluttony. I'll move right along. Sloth, wrath, envy, greed, gossip, evil desire, slander, adultery, anger, rage, malice, chauvinism, sexism, racism, injustice. Unforgiveness, bitterness, conditions of the heart. So Jesus says, I want you to be in this, but don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, even if it's just someone else's reputation. Don't be sexist, don't be racist. Don't just let injustice happen and stand by. He says, I want you to be in it, but not of it. You need to be formed according to a different pattern of the world. You think differently, you act differently, and it's not about what you're wearing necessarily. It's about the condition of your heart. But we thought, oh no, that big, bad, evil world, I've got to come out from amongst themest and be yeest separatist, overhearest. <laughs> In King Jamest, Englishest, of courseest, because that's what Jesus spoketh. Okay, so what we've done is we've built a defense fortress around us to protect us from that big, bad, evil booger monster in the world and we just don't want to be like those worldly people so I've got my defense fortress around me and it's just us four and no more and we're hanging on to the rapture hurry up Jesus if I could just not sin until you come that's all I want to do I just got to try to be good until you come because that's the extent of my whole Christian life and so we've created this little artificial social construct some call it the church and it's, it's removed from the world in which we were created to thrive and change and transform and we've built this defense fortress. The only problem is not in the American church, just the Australian church. When we came out from amongst them to be ye separate, we bought us with us. So remember some of those words that I talked about over there? Anger and envy and gluttony, gossip, slander. All of those sorts of things, we brought them with us. So instead of being over here and being in the world but not of it, We've come over here, and we're of the world, but not in it. It is very hard to change a world that you're not in. It's even harder to change a world that you are the same substance as. In Matthew 5, where Jesus says we are both salt and light, they are agents of change. They are transformation agents. But if we are the same substance as the world, we can't change it. If we're not engaged with the world, we can't change it. The only place for salt is not in the salt shaker, it's on the steak. And I know you're all vegetarians in this part of the world. So the fact is, I'll tell you why the church has become unpalatable to a lot of the world. Because we've taken our big salt shaker and just put it all on one piece of steak. And they'll take a bite and spit it out. Rather than understanding it's not about one big event or one big moment, it's about all of us containing that salt and going into our schools, our universities, our workplaces, our shopping centers, and salting our world. Honestly, we just need the church to stop doing church and start being the church and not waiting for some elite Navy SEALs to come in and do the big crusade that's going to win your town to Christ. It is Christians being Christians in the midst of a lost and a broken world. That's why we need great churches empowering Christians to be the church, not just go to church or do church, but to be the church. I love God's church when we are the church. 
But this is what happens. We're here in our little artificial social construct, our defense fortress. And then every now and again in our quiet time, our Bible flips open to Matthew 28. We're like, oh my gosh, the great suggestion. I mean, okay, the great... Jesus is saying if you're having a bad hair day and you've got nothing better to do this week, why don't you go into that big, bad, evil world and tell the world that Jesus lives. And so we go, but that's not my calling. That's not my gifting. That's for all those types, those Chris Kane weird evangelist types in the church. You know, those ones that are really called to reach the, them. So we get all those weird people together and we say, right, you're the Friday night evangelism team. So we get them all together and they get in their little holy huddle. And then on Friday night, they're praying for protection from the big, bad, evil world. They shunned a hunter, Kawasaki, Suzuki, whatever, however they want to pray. And they're ready and they're armed and they're dangerous. And then we let the drawbridge down from our defense fortress. I've got my little track. I'm prayed up. I'm going into that darkness. And I go in and there's some poor guy. I've got zero relationship with him. It's a Friday night. He just has been working hard all week. All he wants to do is take his girlfriend to a movie. But no, this is my evangelism night. So I accost him in the street. I shove a track down his throat. Did you know Jesus Christ died for your sin? If you don't repent right now, you're going to die and go to everlasting hell. I want you to say this incantational prayer after me. Oh my gosh, it's 10 o'clock. I'm a Christian. I turn into a pumpkin. If you want to look like me, sing like me, dance like me, next Sunday, 10 o'clock, see you there. And we run back over here and we put up our drawbridge and go, praise God. I've just done my evangelism for the week. Praise God. Hallelujah. And we've reduced it to something someone else does that's not me because that's not my gift or my calling. And we just accost people. And we stay separate from the very world that Jesus created us to bring change and transformation to. He says, you're the light of that world. You're the salt of the earth. And that's why in John 18, 37, Jesus said, for this cause, I came to earth. Listen to the cause. There's a cause. This is not a religion. There's a cause. He says that my life would bear witness to the truth. Do you notice he didn't say, I came just to shove the truth down your throat. I came to argue about the truth. He said, I came to bear witness. And we call this a world that is relativistic and pluralistic and doesn't believe in absolute truth. The church is primed for this hour because this generation doesn't want to hear about it. They want to see that it works. Then they'll believe that it's true. This generation wants us to bear witness to the truth. Not just go through a ritual once a week, but to live the real deal 24-7. They want us to bear witness. And that means be in this world and let's be formed according to a different spirit. Romans 12 says, do not be conformed to this world. Don't be formed according to the pattern of this world, but be ye transformed. Not by the removal of your mind, but by the renewal of your mind, that you may prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. So we're going to bring transformation to our world by bearing witness. So you don't need to be a great preacher. You don't need to be a wonderful evangelist. You've just got to be a Christian. And you've got to just bear witness to the truth. Do you notice it says when the Holy Spirit came to give us the power to be witnesses, not to do witnessing. And so we need a generation of Christians that understand it's not about standing on a street corner to do witnessing, but to be witnesses wherever you are, on whatever campus you are, whichever location you are, across the earth. Every one of us are called to be witnesses on the earth, to bring salt and light in the midst of our darkness. That's what God has called us to do. All of us. We can all be witnesses if we're in authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. Church, this isn't a day or an hour to stand back, point a finger, judge or criticize. The hour is urgent. The Bible says deep, deep darkness is hovering over the earth. We need the church to rise up.
and be the church. This is the hour for which we were created, not to run away from a world, but to engage it. Let me just read you this one poem, and I think it will sum up everything I've been trying to say today. Jesus said in Matthew 4, 18, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That's what he said he'll make us. If you're shy, it's okay. I'll take that around and I'll make you, I'll shape you, frame you, form you and construct you into one thing, a fisher of men. And I wonder if we're not becoming fishers of men, who are we actually following? Because Jesus said, whatever your personality type is, whoever you are, the sign that you're my follower is not that you're rich, famous or a celebrity. It's that you are becoming a fisher of men. And yet most churches, rather than being fishers of men, we've just become keepers of the aquarium. Are all the little fishes comfortable in the aquarium? Is the water temperature nice for the aquarium? And we've got a lost and a dying world. Let me just read you this. A man fell into a pit and he couldn't get himself out. A subjective person came along and said, I feel for you down there in the pit. An objective person came along and said, it's logical that someone would fall down into that pit. A Christian scientist came along and said, you only think you're in a pit. A Pharisee said, only bad people fall into the pit. A newspaper reporter wanted the exclusive story on the pit. A fundamentalist said, you deserve your pit. Confucius said, if you listen to me, you wouldn't be in the pit. Buddha said, a pit is only your state of mind. A realist said, that's a pit. A scientist calculated the pressure necessary to get him out of the pit. A geologist told him to appreciate the rock strata in the pit. A tax man asked him if he was paying taxes on the pit. The council inspector asked if he had a permit to dig a pit. An evasive person came along and avoided the subject of a pit altogether. A self-pitying person said, you haven't seen anything until you've seen my pit. A charismatic said, just confess you're not in the pit. An optimist said, things could get worse. A pessimist said, things will get worse. Jesus, seeing the man, knelt down and lifted him out of the pit. Church, our job is to reach down into the trenches of life, engage a lost and a dying world, and lift them out of darkness into relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen and amen and amen. Let me just pray for you, and then I'm going to hand over to Pastor Craig. Father, I thank you for your word today. And Lord, we don't want to just be people that are going through some religious routine. Lord, we want to be your church on the earth. We want to be your salt. We want to be your light. And my prayer for all of us is that you would use us and that we would be open to you using us, Lord, wherever our world is, not waiting for one day when, but now, to be your light in the midst of a broken world. Use us to reach the lost for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.